0: Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 138, Hooker Day in Boston. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'll be talking about a one time holiday celebrated in Boston in 1903 called Hooker Day. While it might sound like this is going to be an X rated podcast, I'm not talking about that kind of hooker. Instead, I'll be talking about General Joseph Fighting Joe Hooker, who was briefly the commander of the main Union force called the Army of the Potomac. Forty years after his Civil War command, he was immortalized with a massive statue in front of our statehouse. When the statue was dedicated, the entire city celebrated a holiday that was called Hooker Day in his honor. But before I talk about Hooker Day, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club Pick and our upcoming historical event. My pick for the Boston Book Club this week is a brief article in the Smithsonian. Once upon a time, I subscribed to the Smithsonian magazine, but I read this one like everyone else does, on their blog. At the end of May, they announced an outstanding acquisition made by the Boston Athenaeum. In a private sale from an antiques dealer, the Athenaeum purchased two leather-bound photo albums, which contain a total of 87 portraits. The article describes them as, a veritable who's who of 19th-century black Boston, dressed to the nines in Victorian finery. The images bring to life politicians, military officers, literary figures, financiers, abolitionists, and children, formerly posed in opulent studio settings and gazing with great dignity directly at the camera. The albums belong to Harriet Hayden, an African-American woman who, along with her husband Louis, escaped slavery to become a major figure on Boston's Underground Railroad. The opening of the article describes one of the portraits. With a quiet, unflinching confidence, Virginia L. Molyneux Hewlett-Douglas posed for the photographer, one slender hand rustling the pleats of her fine silk dress. Although portraits were trendy and accessible in the 1860s when hers was shot, hand-colored photographs were a luxury, and this one is saturated with shades of emerald and lilac, underlining Virginia's wealth and high social standing as the wife of Frederick Douglas Jr., son of the celebrated abolitionist. Her name is handwritten above the portrait in flowery cursive as Mrs. Frederick Douglass, pasted into one of two recently discovered albums that have the potential to change much of what we know of the network of African-Americans centered around the steep north slope of Boston's Beacon Hill in the 1860s and beyond. We'll have a link in this week's show notes. You can check out the article. It includes samples of a few of the photos, explanations of why the albums are so important, and the curator's plans to research the photo subjects who are known and attempt to identify those who are not. And for our upcoming event this week, we're featuring the local edition of a statewide event. Mass Humanities is sponsoring a series called Reading Frederick Douglass Together that's being held across the Commonwealth this summer. On July 2nd, people will gather on Boston Common to take part in a reading from Douglass' 1852 speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? Though Frederick Douglass had strong ties to Boston and gave many famous speeches here, this, his most famous address, was given in Rochester, New York. It was delivered on July 5th as a response to the city's Independence Day celebrations, and it takes aim squarely at the promise of the declaration that all men are created equal, and contrasts the beautiful sentiment of that phrase with the reality of enslavement that he had grown up in, and that still continued to that day. He said in part, Fellow citizens, pardon me. Allow me to ask, why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I, or those I represent, to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and of natural justice embodied in that Declaration of Independence extended to us? And am I, therefore, called upon to bring our humble offerings to the national altar, and to confess benefits and express devout gratitude for the blessings resulting from your independence to us? But such is not the state of the case. I say it with a sad sense of the disparity between us. I am not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought life and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice. I must mourn. To drag a man in fetters into the grand illuminated temple of liberty and call upon him to join you in joyous anthems were inhuman mockery and sacrilegious irony. Do you mean citizens to mock me by asking me to speak today? If so, there's a parallel to your conduct. And let me warn you that it is dangerous to copy the example of a nation whose crimes, towering up to heaven were thrown down by the breath of the Almighty, burying that nation in irrecoverable ruin. I can today take up the plaintive lament of appealed and woe-smitten people. What to the American slave is your Fourth of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days of the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty an unholy license your national greatness, swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless, your denunciations of tyrants, breastfronted fronted impudence, your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery, your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings, with all your religious parade and solemnity, are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy, a thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. There is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of these United States at this very hour. It's uncomfortable to read even today because it forces you to examine uncomfortable truths about our nation's founding and founders. If you have to confront an uncomfortable truth, why not do it with friends? Here in Boston, the reading will be held at noon on Tuesday, July 2nd, in front of the memorial to Robert Gould Shaw and the 54th Massachusetts Volunteers. However, if you won't be in Boston, we'll be sure to link to the entire event schedule from Mass Humanities. Readings will be held in different towns from June 27th to September 28th. At each one, members of the public can volunteer to read a passage from the speech, and everyone takes turns until the whole thing is complete. We're about to get into the best part of today's show, which means that this is the point at which another podcast might pause for what's known as a mid-roll ad. They might tell you about mail-order underwear, or print your own postage. They might extol the virtues of a certain web hosting company. Or perhaps they'd explain the benefits of a meal subscription service. Well, that's not us. While we wouldn't turn down the right sponsor, we count on our listeners instead of advertisers. By supporting us on Patreon, you can help us cover the cost of making Hub History. Plus, there are fun rewards at the $2, $5, and $10 monthly levels. To check out their awards or to sign up, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the Support Us link. Thank you to everyone who's already contributed, and thank you for signing up today. And now it's time for this week's main topic. In March of 2018, Representative Michelle M. Du Bois, the state rep for parts of Brockton, East Bridgewater, and West Bridgewater, was at the Massachusetts State House. About a month after the deadly Parkland shooting, high school students from around the state gathered at the Capitol to advocate for stronger gun control. Du Bois was with a group who were making what has to be one of the oldest jokes in the Commonwealth. She tweeted, Are you a General Hooker? Of course not. Yet the main entrance of the mass State House says otherwise. Me Too is not all about rape and harassment, but also women's dignity. A funny double entendre misrepresented as respect for a long-dead general. Now, I've usually heard this joke as some variant of, if the general hooker entrance is in the front, does that mean the specific hookers enter in the back? Apparently, high schoolers haven't developed that keen, refined sense of humor just yet. Du Bois said, I've seen teen boys tease teen girls about being general hookers waiting in line at the entrance. The name of a long-dead union general just can't compete with the more modern meaning of the word hooker. Unfortunately, the internet wasn't kind to Representative Du Bois. She followed up her initial reaction to clarify that she wanted the state to add the general's first name to the signs, saying, Who but a historian or a historical-minded person would connect this sign with a statue or a historical figure? However, there was already blood in the water. With the massive white supremacist protests in Charlottesville a few months before, a huge chunk of the mouth-breathing political right somehow convinced itself that attempts to stop glorifying the cause of slavery meant that liberals intended to erase all history of the Civil War. Online commenters misconstrued Du Bois' initial statement thinking she was demanding that the statue be taken down. After all, that would fit with their muddle-headed narrative of Civil War erasure. The General Hooker entrance is meant to honor Major General Joseph Hooker, who was the only Massachusetts officer to be placed in command of the Army of the Potomac, the main Union force pursuing Robert E. Lee's army of traitors. Hooker was born in Hadley, Massachusetts, attended the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, and moved to California after the Mexican-American War. Though his family had resided here since the founding period, Hooker didn't really have ties to Massachusetts after childhood. However, he was the highest-ranking officer to come out of the Commonwealth, so he's the one who got the statue. Though he had a reputation as an aggressive combat commander, Hooker earned the name Fighting Joe by accident. A newspaper dispatch was sent for the battlefield to New York City that was supposed to say, Fighting! Joe Hooker Attacks Rebels. But in transmitting the report by Telegraph, the headline lost its punctuation, instead reading, Fighting Joe Hooker Attacks Rebels. Secessionist General Robert E. Lee seems to have had some fun with the mix-up, sarcastically calling the general Mr. F.J. Hooker. Before his command of the entire Army of the Potomac, Fighting Joe earned a reputation as a wily tactician and an aggressive and inspiring battlefield leader during the 1862 Peninsula Campaign and at Antietam, where he fought Stonewall Jackson's corps to a stalemate. After his command of the Army of the Potomac, he fought a legendary battle at Lookout Mountain, near Chattanooga, Tennessee. Sometimes referred to as the Battle Above the Clouds, Lookout Mountain saw Hooker lead three divisions to envelop a fortified secessionist mountaintop that had seemed impregnable, driving the enemy away and taking many prisoners while suffering light casualties in his command. The victory helped open Chattanooga as a Union stronghold in the South. Unfortunately, between those two strings of victories, Hooker was blamed for one of the most catastrophic federal defeats of the war. As the Army of the Potomac was marching toward Richmond, the secessionists turned them back. Then, Lee split his army and attacked Hooker's forces at Chancellorsville. The much smaller secessionist force managed to completely rout and humiliate Hooker's Grand Army. Then it marched north, toward Pennsylvania. When Hooker then wanted to continue on toward Richmond, President Lincoln ordered him to pursue Lee instead. The two argued, and Hooker resigned in protest, probably narrowly avoiding being fired. Lee marched on to Gettysburg, and Hooker would be remembered as having allowed it. Time eventually softened America's memory of fighting Joe, and when the 30th anniversary of the war rolled around in the 1890s, people were ready to see him in a more positive light. There were commemorations of the war and its veterans throughout the anniversary period of 1891 to 1895, and more would soon follow. The monument to Robert Gould Shaw and the 54th Massachusetts Volunteers was nearing completion in 1896, and it would be dedicated the following year. During this period of warm feelings, the state legislature passed a law authorizing construction of a statue of General Joseph Hooker as Chapter 43 of the 1896 Acts and Resolves of the General Court. Resolved providing for erecting in the State House or on the State House grounds an equestrian statue in bronze of the late Major General Joseph Hooker. Resolved that there be allowed and paid out of the Treasury of the Commonwealth to be expended under the direction of the Governor and Council a sum not to exceed $50,000 for the purpose of erecting in Massachusetts an equestrian statue in bronze of the late Major General Joseph Hooker. Said statue to be placed in or near the State House on such site as the Governor and Council may designate. Approved March 28, 1896. The speech given by Lieutenant Governor Curtis Guild at the eventual dedication of the monument helps fill in the gaps and illustrates how the statue got created. The details of its construction and location were left by this resolve to the Governor and Council. On January 5, 1898, the council of that year selected Daniel C. French and Edward C. Potter to prepare, respectively, the models of man and horse, which were later approved by the same council and by Governor Walcott. In the same year, 1898, the site for the monument was chosen and approved. The two sculptors, Daniel Chester French and Edward Clark Potter, were both Massachusetts residents, and they would both go on to wide acclaim for later projects. Edward Clark Potter was basically French's assistant, but he was considered an expert on portraying animals in his own right. A few years later, his most famous work would be the pair of pink marble lions that guard the entrance to the New York City Public Library, the ones that feature in the opening shot of Ghostbusters. By the time he won the Hooker Commission, Daniel Chester French had created a statue of a Minuteman for the town of Concord, John Harvard in Cambridge, and the heavy bronze doors of the Boston Public Library. A few years later, he would design the medal that's awarded for the Pulitzer Prize, but his most famous work is in Washington, D.C. In 1920, French created the seated statue of Abraham Lincoln for the Lincoln Memorial. Seven years after its authorization, the memorial to Fighting Joe Hooker was nearing completion, and the Commonwealth and the city of Boston were getting ready to dedicate it. June 25th was chosen as the date of the unveiling, and a grand celebration was planned. A new holiday was proclaimed and city employees were given a day off, as the May 21, 1903 proceedings of the Boston Common Council reveal. Mr. McMahon of Ward 4 offered an order that his honor the mayor instruct the various heads of departments to grant the employees in their respective departments a holiday on June 25, 1903, Hooker Day, without loss of pay, as part of compensation for their services to the city. If Representative du Bois' teen boys and teen girls made jokes about the General Hooker entrance, imagine how much fun they would have with a holiday called Hooker Day. Of course, proclaiming a holiday for city workers didn't mean that everyone would get Hooker Day off. Governor John L. Bates issued a proclamation on June 22nd urging private employers to give their workers a holiday as well. To the citizens of Boston, On Thursday next... The Commonwealth is to dedicate a statue to commemorate the services of Major General Joseph Hooker. This monument is erected to indicate the appreciation that Massachusetts has, not only for the great commander whose name it bears, but also for the brave men who represented Massachusetts and the cause of the Union in the Civil War. Thousands of veterans are to visit this city on that day and to join in the dedication exercises and in the parade. The State Departments will be closed. His Honor the Mayor has directed that City Hall be closed, and I hereby suggest and earnestly recommend that similar action be taken by our citizens, and that all places of business be closed, and that our people emphasize their appreciation of the services of the Union soldiers, the living, and the dead, by making the day in effect a holiday, and by fitting decorations throughout the city and especially along the route of the procession. On Hooker Day Eve, the June 24th Boston Globe lays out how the people of Boston reacted to this request. Yesterday, throughout the city, representatives of various lines of business and trade held meetings to discuss the proclamation of Governor Bates, in which he requested that tomorrow be made, in effect, a public holiday, owing to the large number of visitors to be in the city and out of respect to the memory of the men in blue and an appreciation of the services they rendered the country. There was only one result to such meetings, and that was a unanimous vote to fall in line with the request of the head of the Commonwealth. So numerous were these meetings, and so general was the decision by private concerns to respect the request of the governor, that it is safe to say that few, if any, business concerns in Boston will open their doors tomorrow. So Hooker Day would become a holiday for nearly everyone in Boston. With so many people given the day off, and with tens of thousands of veterans expected to march in the parade, and hundreds of thousands of citizens expected to spectate, the city had some other preparations to make as well. On June 15th, the Boston Board of Aldermen took up the public safety and infrastructural concerns. Alderman Bowen offered an order that the Board of Police be authorized to close to travel by vehicles except police, fire, hospital, and mail wagons, the streets to be used for the Hooker Parade on June 25th, and the City Messenger is hereby requested to rope off said streets wherever necessary, and the expense to be charged to the appropriation for City Messenger Department. Chairman Doyle offered an order that his honor the mayor be requested to order City Hall and the other city buildings closed on Hooker Day, June 25th, 1903, and that he be further requested to have City Hall decorated on that day. There were also preparations to be made on the civilian side. On June 24th, the Boston Post reported on the last scramble to get ready for the next day's celebration. Already, it is predicted that the crowd which will gather in this city for tomorrow's celebration will outnumber even the immense gathering that Boston welcomed on Dewey Day a few years ago. With the coming advent of Christian scientists, as well as the school Teachers convention, it is expected to be a very difficult proposition after today to secure suitable accommodations in this city. Every lodging house in Boston is sure to reap its harvest and rates are accordingly bound to mount suddenly skyward. Meantime, the quarters of the Hooker Day Committee at the State House are besieged from morning until night by eager applicants for tomorrow's tickets. Early yesterday, a large sign was placed without the door stating that every seat for the State House stand was long since taken. This has had but little effect upon the seekers, most of whom, though, are disabled veterans or their relatives. For these, a few tickets for the post office square stand are still held in reserve. In addition to the holiday, the June 24th Boston Globe noted concerns about the weather. All that is necessary now is for Colonel Smith of the Weather Bureau to turn off the water supply and give us a little sunshine to properly brighten up the now well-washed city and it won't take long for the cheerful rays to penetrate the spirits of Bostonians and make them as radiant and enthusiastic tomorrow as the veterans can desire. As you might imagine, most of the news profiles of Fighting Joe during the lead-up to the statue's dedication focused on the Battle Above the Clouds and Hooker's other glorious victories. Just one tiny sidebar at the bottom of an inside page on the June 21st Boston Globe raised the possibility that he had gotten in over his head. It said, Good Corps Commander. Army of the Potomac, however, was said to be too heavy for him to handle. While General Hooker was very successful in handling armies of moderate size, the results of his having been placed in charge of the Army of the Potomac were not brilliant. And it is a frequent comment of his military contemporaries that he was overweighted by such a large command, though none seems to question the efficiency of that army and its confidence in him at the time he was deprived of the command of it. He suffered a serious defeat at Chancellorsville in the winter of 1863, and the consequent criticisms, together with personal grievances against the general-in-chief at Washington, Halleck, with whom Hooker was never on good terms, caused him to resign his command a few days before Gettysburg. The critical state of affairs in the Middle West about the time Hooker severed his connection with the Virginia campaign caused his dispatch to Tennessee with reinforcements known as the 20th Army Corps. With this body, he continued the fine record for intelligence and gallantry that he had enjoyed before, up to the time that he had assumed the command of the Army of the Potomac. As Hooker Day approached, every hotel was booked solid, and many of the military units and veterans were camped out in public parks around the city. Of course, with the rainy weather, camping out was less than comfortable, and one unit found an alternative. The 2nd Cavalry, based out of Fort Ethan Allen near Colchester, Vermont, decided they didn't want to sleep in the mud in Alston's Dummy Park. Instead, they simply stayed on the rail cars that brought them into the train yard at East Watertown, bedding down next to their horses. The next morning, units streamed into downtown Boston from their various overnight accommodations. Everyone rallied on the common before dispersing to their own assembly areas to wait on the parade to begin. The state militia formed up on Commonwealth Avenue, while active-duty soldiers, sailors, and Marines fell in on Newberry. The first division of the Veterans Corps packed into Pemberton Square just behind the State House, while the second, third, and fourth divisions waited on the Common. At about 9 a.m., the governor, lieutenant governor, and members of the executive council walked out of the State House toward the reviewing stand near the shrouded statue. They were joined by, as the papers put it, Mrs. Joseph Hooker Wood and Master Joseph Hooker Wood. They were the widow and son of Lieutenant Colonel Joseph Hooker Wood fighting Joe's nephew, who was himself a veteran of the Civil War. A few minutes later, the veterans of Hooker's brigade who had assembled at Pemberton Square marched out and formed up in ranks on Beacon Street facing the State House. At their head, the color bearer carried the tattered battle flag of the 11th Pennsylvania Regiment. The unveiling ceremony was brief, by all accounts lasting only about 15 minutes. Lieutenant Governor Curtis Guild officially presented the statue to the governor, who officially accepted it, and then it was unveiled, the crowd sang America, and the parade began. The lieutenant governor recalled the legislative process that led to the commissioning of the statue, the process of choosing a sculptor and a site, and then said, I have the honor to report to you the completion and erection of the statue on the site selected and prepared by our predecessors in accordance with the action of the general court. It is further my high privilege on the part of the committee in charge, now officially to transfer to you, the Chief Magistrate of the Commonwealth, this monument, erected by the people of Massachusetts in memory of the daring and devotion of the leader that Massachusetts gave to the armies of the Union, Major General Joseph Hooker. Governor John L. Bates's speech was brief and to the point. On behalf of the Commonwealth, I accept this monument, and thank you, sir. The committee, the artists, and all whose work has contributed to the perfection of this noble memorial. Joseph Hooker was a descendant of several generations of Massachusetts yeomanry. Here he was born, and here he spent his childhood and youth, but the breadth of the continent was not too vast a sphere for the activities of his manhood. Trained in the nation's school of the soldier, he was ready to serve her whenever and wherever the nation needed him. Early in the great contest for the perpetuity of the Union, he attained distinction and through merit advanced from command to command until he led a vast host, the army of the Potomac. Never in the rear, but always leading his troops, sharing their dangers, and beloved by them, always seeking the enemy, whether in the valley or on the mountain, beneath or above the clouds, self-reliant, resourceful, intrepid, impetuous, he was a fighter with his sword always drawn, a hero of battles, a soldier, and a patriot. To his memory and to the memory of the 146,730 brave, true, irresistible men whom this state sent forth to engage in that greatest of all conflicts of arms is this monument dedicated. Here, sitting in the saddle of bronze, may the commander ever direct the attention of the world to the fact that Massachusetts does not forget her defenders. And may he order to the front in all generations of our citizenship the best impulses, the noblest ideals, the highest traits of character. At the time, it was unusual that the formal speeches and unveiling took place before the parade commenced. For example, when the memorial to Robert Gould Shaw and the 54th Massachusetts Volunteers was unveiled across the street from the State House in 1897, a ceremony was held at Boston's Music Hall, then the parade marched to the statue site on Beacon Street. A June 25, 1903 wire service story picked up by the Las Vegas Daily Optic notes, The program committee reversed the usual order of things and had the unveiling take place before the parade in order that everyone might have an opportunity of viewing the latter. The unveiling exercises were simple and occupied less than a quarter of an hour. The only addresses were the presentation speech made by the chairman of the statue committee and the speech of acceptance by Governor Bates. At the conclusion of these addresses, the mammoth statue, which up to this time had been enveloped with the stars and stripes, was exposed amidst cheers from thousands of throats. Another wire service story, this one carried in the Washington, D.C. Evening Star on June 26th, said, Master Joseph Hooker Wood, grand-nephew of General Hooker, pulled the cord which released the veil, and as the curtain fell, Battery A, stationed on the common, fired a major general salute of 13 guns. Master Joseph's age isn't given in the news coverage, but from the picture of him published in the program, I'd guess he was about 10 years old. The Globe noted, The little boy in the white duck sailor suit laughed in childish appreciation of the noise and enthusiasm which the act of his hand had evoked. The Las Vegas Optic tries to give a concise description of the statue for an audience that will likely never visit Boston and see it. The statue is the work of Daniel C. French. It is colossal measuring nearly 15 feet high, while the pedestal on which it stands is of nearly equal height. The horse stands with all four hoofs on the ground, its head pulled in, its tail pendant. The general is equally quiet. He wears the soft chapeau, sits with straight knees very erect, and holds his head a little back, as if observing the movement of troops at a distance. We'll include a photo of the general in the show notes. This particular picture was taken in 1863, and it shows him relaxed slouching slightly back in the saddle with his hat pushed up off his brows a bit. While this photo might not have been the exact model for the sculpture, it's clearly the same basic pose and posture that we see in bronze in Boston today. The article continues, describing the beginning of the parade. Immediately after the conclusion of the exercises, the booming of cannon announced that the parade had started. Along the line of march, thousands of spectators were thronged, and the various military organizations were loudly cheered. On the reviewing stand were the state and city officials, survivors of the Army of the Potomac, and a number of distinguished war veterans from various parts of the country. The dedication of the monument today was made the occasion of a splendid military pageant. 25,000 soldiers of the United States Army, National Guard of the State of Massachusetts, and sailors and marines from the Charlestown Navy Yard being in line and constituting the largest parade of armed men seen in Boston in a number of years. In addition to the regular military organizations, the parade included members of the Loyal Legion, the Society of the Army of the Potomac, whose annual reunion is in progress here, the Veterans of the Grand Army of the Republic, New England Association of Veterans of the Mexican War, Naval and Military Order Spanish-American War Veterans, Ancient and Honorable Artillery Company. Worcester Continentals, Sons of Veterans, and Society of California Pioneers. The presence of the latter organization being in recognition of General Hooker's work on the Pacific coast before the Civil War. All these columns of current and former military men were following a route that was quite different from today's St. Patrick's Day Parade, or the Bunker Hill Day Parade, or even this month's Pride Parade. The Boston Globe outlined the route of the parade and the timetable it would follow. If the column starts promptly at 11, the announced hour, and the weather holds good, the head of the line will reach the entrance of Back Bay Station at 11.07. The corner of Dartmouth Street and Columbus Ave will be reached at 11.10, and at 11.15 the parade will turn into West Newton Street from Columbus Ave. Allowing that the men will take their time while going along the unpaved ground on West Newton Street, the head of the column will arrive at the corner of Tremont and West Newton Streets at 11.20. The Drinking Fountain at the junction of Tremont and Montgomery Streets, a short distance from Dover, will be reached at 11.40, and Filiot Street at noon. The corner of Tremont and Winter Streets at 12.15, and Washington and Winter Streets at 12.17. Church Green, near Lincoln, off Summer Street, will be reached at 12.20, and Pearl and High Streets five minutes later. Giving the Paraders plenty of time, without stops, the head of the line ought to arrive at the reviewing stand in Post Office Square at 1225, the corner of Washington and Water Streets at 1227, City Hall at 1234, and the State House at 1240. We'll include a map of the parade route in this week's show notes, but here it is in a nutshell. It began in Park Square at the corner of Boylston and Charles, ran straight out Columbus Avenue to West Newton Street in the south end. It turned left on West Newton, left again onto Tremont, and then followed Tremont all the way back to Boston Common. The marchers then took a right to detour down Winter Street, made a big loop through the financial district, and took School Street past Old City Hall and King's Chapel, continued on to Beacon Street, and ended up in front of the Hooker statue at the State House. Along with men marching, the Hooker Day Parade would feature antique battle flags from the Civil War that by 1903 were the next best thing to holy relics. The June 24th Boston Globe reports how some of these colors would be incorporated into the celebration. The committee has assurances from Colonel John L. Tiernan, ACUSA, commanding the Artillery District of Boston that General Hooker's old colors of the 1st Artillery, of which regiment he was adjutant when the Mexican War began, will be carried in the procession by the 77th Company of Coast Artillery, 1st Lieutenant Richard H. Williams from Fort Warren, commanding. These flags have been in the museum at the Fortress Monroe and will be lent by the Secretary of War especially for this occasion. Colonel Tiernan will detail a special color guard to carry the flags. The parade made national news, as you can see from a wire service story that was picked up by the Washington, D.C. Evening Star the day after the event. Scores of the most distinguished military men of America participated, together with regular army, cavalry, and infantry, Marines and Blue Jackets from the Coast Division of the North Atlantic Squadron sent here for the day, the state militia, veterans who served with Hooker, members of the Massachusetts Department of the Grand Army of the Republic, veterans of the Spanish-American War, and the Boston School Regiment. While it didn't make headlines nationwide like the parade did, there was an additional ceremony that night at Mechanics Hall on Huntington Ave. The evening program included music from the First Corps of Cadets Band, The Grand Army of the Republic Veterans Chorus, an oration from a general of the G.A.R., and an Assembly of Colors featuring the antique battle flags of various Massachusetts units. The June 26th Boston Post describes one more event that took place that evening, as veterans sat watching a drummer during the post celebration at Mechanics Hall. Governor Bates rose to speak at 7.20. The veterans applauded him heartily. The governor said, Veterans and friends, we have here this evening an old drum. It was beaten on Lookout Mountain. We have with us one who was a drummer boy in Hooker's Brigade. The old drummer boy will now beat the assembly on the old drum. Cheers and applause greeted this announcement. Front came the command, and a grizzled vet marched out to the front, accompanied by a younger man, a fife player. The sea of grey hairs and bald heads rose up and blood mounted to their cheeks and temples as the drum and fife played the old summons. Two old fellows sitting under the stage waved their chairs aloft and the war fever had showed its fervid grip on all. It was a scene appealing to the calmest mind. The old and the young man walked off, but the vets called out for just one more rattle of that old drum. They applauded until the drummer came forward and played Yankee Doodle. This delighted the old fellows, and they stood up and tapped their feet. Reluctantly, they allowed the drummer boy to retire. As I prepared this episode, I was struck by the declining numbers of these old fellows. I did the research and writing for this episode during the week of the 75th anniversary of D-Day. While I was too young to pay much attention to the 40th anniversary, I very distinctly remember the 50th anniversary of D-Day, with many stories about the waning ranks of the veterans of that fateful day. My own grandfather, who was wounded during the landing at Utah Beach, had just passed away a few years before. And of course, during the anniversary this year, just a scant handful of D-Day veterans are still alive from any of the Allied armies, almost all of whom are nearly centenarians by now. For the Hooker Day Parade in 1903, there was already a growing sense of melancholy over this thinning of the ranks. I was struck by a paragraph from the June 26th Boston Post, which describes the aging and disabled veterans who came out to watch the parade. While their gritty comrades, refusing to be classified in the category of disabled veterans, held grimly on in the fatiguing march over the muddy pavements, refusing to be accounted for until the procession was finished, many limping, sad-eyed veterans watched them pass by from their shelter in windows, stands, or on the edge of the crowd. Unable to forego the old fascination of the music and the drum, these forgotten soldiers had donned their old uniforms. Eloquent as was their silence and inaction as their comrades of other days filed by, more touching by far was their reverent tribute to the colors they had followed long ago. Forbidden by age or other infirmities from taking their places with the men by whose side they had struggled for four long years, they stood singly or in groups, each raising his old felt hat in reverence to the stained and battle-scarred standards. From that passage, I couldn't help but see a parallel to the waning of another generation to which our nation owes so great a debt. To learn more about Hooker Day in Boston, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com 138. We'll post a link to the tweet where Representative Du Bois expressed her opinion about clarifying the name of the General Hooker entrance to the State House. We'll also have links to all the Boston Globe, Boston Post, and out-of-town newspapers we quoted from, And we'll have links to the act authorizing the construction of the statue, the program from the dedication ceremonies, and city council records about the official preparations for Hooker Day. And, of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and the Smithsonian article about Harriet Hayden's photo albums, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you'd like to leave us some feedback, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory dot com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and we might play it on the show. We are Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or just go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. We're on all your favorite podcasting apps, including Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, TuneIn Radio, Player FM, and many more apps. Stream the show every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on bostonfreeradio.com. You can also listen on your favorite smart speaker. If you have an Amazon Echo, just say, Alexa, play the Hub History podcast. Or if you have a Google Home, you can say, hey, Google, play the Hub History podcast. Sure. Playing the latest episode of Hub History, our favorite stories from Boston history. Apple Podcasts is still the app where most people hear podcasts. If you subscribe on Apple, please consider rating and reviewing us. It helps us show up higher in the podcast rankings, and it helps people find us more easily. If you do write us a review, drop us a line, and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. Or, just tell a friend about us. Word of mouth is truly the best way to help new listeners discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week.